0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him.
1: Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will no longer be a delay. Out, out in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed, as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the scroll that lies open in the, in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went up to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must pray prophecy again about many peoples, nation, languages, and kings. Praise be to God.
0: So we all know that phrase, right? Sticks and stones may bake my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I hope you know just how untrue that phrase really is. Right? Words cut deep. Words matter Words hurt a lot. And it is the plan of God that he should win over all the evils of the world through words. I mean, think about words in the scriptures. Think about words in the Bible. Everything begins with a word. The entire scripture, go back to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis, where God creates the world. And whether you believe that in a literal seven-day creation or you believe that God created the world over the course of, of millions of years or wherever you stand on that, the, the point is, the, the idea there is that our God can create life, can bring about anything simply by speaking. And it's God's proactive speech, it's God's, it's God's loving speech, it's God's creative speech that made all that we see, and it is god 's speech that will bring about the end things it 's god 's speech who, that will ultimately bring about the destruction of all evil in the world but it 's not just god' speaking it 's god speaking through us that 's going to do that I, my uh, our five year old Bodhi is learning to read he, he we 're not trying to push it right, but he loves to read he 's been working on words and letters in his preschool class. <clears throat> And he tries to read everything he sees. So we're in my car, <clears throat> excuse me, and I got a big screen up front. And so the song is, is, there's a song playing and then the name of the song is on the screen. And Bodhi sitting in the back seat on the way home says, Daddy, is this song called Testify? And I was like, whoa, good job, man. Did you read that? And he's like, no, the song just says Testify over and over and over again. Oh, okay. All right, well. Okay, so that little comment, though, got me thinking about the word testify, which is a strange word, it, it, it's, I like the word testify, because it's something that means something both in the church and outside the church. A lot of times within the church, we use language that's kind of specialized, we use Christianese words that maybe people outside the church either don't know, or they don't understand it the way that we're using it, because we're using it in a very specialized, churchy kind of way, but testify is a word that everybody knows. Testify is a word that that everybody understands to some degree. When you go to court and you witness on behalf of someone, you are testifying, and what you give is testimony. And your testimony is is trying to reach some end, either conviction or exoneration for a person, or you're trying to uh, go before a, a deliberative body and give testimony to get some bill passed or some some thing worked on. You, You give testimony in order to get things done. We live in a world where words get things done. Words can get people convicted or exonerated. They can get laws passed. They can get nations changed. Words have power. They're weighty. And it is through the power of testimony that God wants to change the world. This is something that everybody can understand because we can understand the power of words in our world. And it's through your testimony that God wants to change your world. It's through the words that you speak that God wants to change your world. I, I grew up in a church that was very focused on testimony and testifying. And, and it was kind of old churchy language where we would testify. You know, when you got baptized, you had to testify before you got baptized. Right? If you were old enough. And I've been baptized twice in my life. I was baptized when I was like... 11 or so because my dad said I should and so I went up and did and then at 16 I really felt like okay I believe this I know this stuff and I got re-baptized and I had to testify with my second baptism now I baptize babies I like baptizing babies I understand baptism very differently now than I did then but at the time that was how I felt I felt like I needed to do this again and I needed to take that step so I got to stand up in front of the church and deliver my testimony to share what God had done for me and what God had done in my life. And it was something that was drilled into us as kids. And then I I continued to grow, and and I went to, to work in churches, and I worked in youth groups, and I went to seminary, and I went to school. And testifying became less cool. Testifying became less important to me personally and to the communities that I was a part of and and as it began to to creep into other kind of church traditions I learned that like personal testimonies weren't a big thing weren't a big deal you weren't taught how to share what God had done for you and to testify to what God had done for you. And then I, I joined churches where no one was ever asked to testify. And I was like, this is weird. like This is, this is bizarre. This, this was like 30% of our services when I was growing up was the people testifying and telling people what God had done for them. And I didn't miss it at the beginning. But the more that I I read scripture, the more that I know Jesus, the, the more that I see the way that God has planned for the world to change, for the world to be changed by his gospel, the more I want to reclaim that emphasis on testimony and on testifying, because it is through telling people the good things that God has done for and through us that our world is changed. That's always been his plan. The Apostle Paul says at one point, Uh, That it is through the foolishness of preaching that God is pleased for the gospel to go forward, for the good news of Jesus to go forward. Now when Paul says that, listen carefully, When, when Paul says that, there's no New Testament. There's only an Old Testament. We think of preaching as, i got to know the scripture, i got to pick up the scripture, be able to read it in Greek and Hebrew, and do all the, do all the work, and do all the, the mining of the meaning, and then go and preach and tell people about it. But when Paul says it's through the foolishness of preaching that God is pleased to save the world, he's not talking about preaching as we understand it. He's not talking about taking the scriptures and, and unpacking them for people. He's talking about telling people about Jesus. It's talking about standing up and telling them the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done for you, what he has done for the world, being connected to the Holy Spirit, being connected to God through Jesus Christ and letting people know about the good news of Jesus. That's the preaching Paul is talking about. And that's a preaching that absolutely any one of us can do. That's a preaching that that any one of you today could go and do that any one of us can, can share with the people that we know and that we love about what God has done for us. We can testify. And we need to reclaim the culture of testimony and of testifying within the church because it is the means by which God will save the world. It's through words that God wants to overcome the powers of the devil. He wants to overcome the powers of the world, the the unjust systems, the evil powers of the world. It's through words that God wants to address those. And that's what this long four-chapter section of Revelation is about. But she didn't see that coming. There's all this weird imagery. There are all strange things happening. But at the end of the day, I think that's what it's really about. And I'll tell you what, I've been sitting with these four chapters for like three weeks now because I confessed to our, our Sunday school class last week. We were talking about these very chapters, and I'm teaching a Sunday school class on this stuff, right? I'm supposed to be the expert. I'm supposed to know this stuff. And I had to go, I don't know what these two chapters in the middle mean. Like, I don't know. I don't get. There's so many different ways of reading it. They're strange. They're bizarre. I don't get it. But the more that I've studied, the more that I've looked into it, the more I really think that these four chapters, Revelation 8-11, through are about the testimony of the church. They're about the people of God testifying and witnessing to the glory of God and the goodness of Jesus in the midst of a broken and hurting and war-filled, pain-broken world. That's really what these are about. And so let's jump in here. Let's jump into the strangeness, okay? We've got seven trumpets. So just to set the stage, right, we are in the throne room of heaven. That's where the apostle John has been given this vision. He's been given a vision of the risen Jesus. And then he's been dictated these seven letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor in Turkey today. And then after that, John is kind of taken up into heaven and he sees the throne of God. And he sees this person on the throne. And then he sees this lamb that looks like it's been slain coming to the throne and taking this scroll of God, which is God's plan for history. And in the past few chapters, what we talked about last week is the lamb begins opening the seals of this scroll. And as he opens the seals of the scroll, things are happening on earth. This cycle of warfare and of famine and of death that just cycles through human history is happening as the lamb is breaking these seals. And we see in one of those seals then that the faithful ones of Christ, the ones who have followed Jesus and the ones who have lost their lives, begin to cry out to the lamb, when will the suffering be over? When will it end? And we're told that they're told just wait a minute, wait a little bit longer. And then in the last, in the sixth seal that is broken, we see Jesus return to make all things right, to end that cycle of violence and of war and of bloodshed. And then there's silence in heaven. And after that silence in heaven, as all the angelic beings surrounding the throne of God stand in awe of the return of Jesus and what's happening in that return, then we see seven angels appear. And these seven angels each have a trumpet. And they're going to blow these trumpets. And as the angels blow the trumpets, we're going to see the, the same cycle that we saw in the seals play out again. Here is these angels blow these trumpets. And so the first angel blows the trumpet and hail and fire mixed with blood are hurled to the earth so that a third of the earth is burned up. And then the second trumpet is blown, and we see something like a great mountain ablaze with fire is hurled into the sea, so a third of the sea becomes blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea die. And then the third trumpet blows, and we see a great star blazing like a torch fall from heaven, and it, it's called wormwood, and it makes all of the fresh water into bitter water, into wormwood. The fourth angel blows the horn, and the sun is struck, and the third of the moon, and the stars, and that a third of them are dark. And then the day is without light and also a third of the night. So, so here we see violence in nature. In these first four, just in the first four seals, we saw these four horsemen and they were, they were human, uh, warfare. They were conquest from empires. They were warfare. There were famine. They were, they were death that came about because of human activity. Because of the ways that humans have warred and fought and contested with one another throughout history. And here, in these first four trumpets, we see the natural order being broken. We see that, you see this, the the natural order of the world falling apart. And so, in the beginning, we see the land being struck by natural disaster. And in the second trumpet, we see the, the sea, the salt water being struck. In the third trumpet, we see the fresh water being struck. And in the fourth trumpet, we see the heavenlies being struck and the stars coming down. And this is the cycle of destruction that happens within nature. So the first time, the first first four seals, we see human destruction. And here in the second, in the four trumpets, we see natural destruction. The natural order of things as as the earth kind of self-destructs here in these trumpets. And so we then come to the fifth trumpet, which is really bizarre, and we see these locusts come up out of the abyss, whatever the abyss happens to be, these locusts come up, and they begin to ravage the world. Now, what you have to understand about chapter 9 and the fifth trumpet is that the vision of locusts here is, is not something to be interpreted literally. They're not helicopters. Okay, So if you're reading any of those like end times books and they're like, these are Apache helicopters making war. No, that's ridiculous. That's not true. They don't know their Old Testament. This image of locusts comes straight out of the book of Joel, the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. In Joel chapter 2, we see God bringing about judgment on his people by bringing a plague of locusts. But these locusts aren't really locusts. They're not really grasshoppers. These locusts are actually armies of the other nations that are coming against God's people. And so in Joel, the locusts are armies that are making war. And and here in the fifth trumpet, we see these armies coming to make war on the earth. But they're only allowed to do it for a short period of time. They're not allowed full reign. And then we come to the sixth trumpet, and we see even larger armies, 200 million strong, making war on the earth. But even these are only allowed so much. They're only allowed to go so far. Now, there are a hundred ways we can interpret these, and you'll find them if you read the different interpretations. But, but here's the big scope of it. The large scope, the large brushstroke of this here is that the world is a broken and hurting place, naturally and human-driven. We are naturally violent, warring creatures because of our sinfulness, because of our brokenness, and that brings brokenness into the world. And our world, because of the fall, because of sinfulness, is also broken, so that natural disaster comes and brings disaster upon people. But what these trumpets are assuring us is that no matter how bad it looks, no matter how hard it is, No matter how powerful the forces of evil are in the world, no matter how powerful the natural forces are in the world, God holds them back. They're not allowed to have full reign and full destructive power. That's why only a third of all of nature is harmed in these first four trumpets. That's why these locusts, these armies, are only given a short time to torment people. That's why the the scope of the armies in the sixth trumpet is, is limited here's what this assures us. No matter how difficult the world works, no matter how difficult things become, our God will not let them overtake his people. Our God works in his mercy and in his grace to restrain the natural forces of destruction and of evil to preserve his people. And so this is, this is in this vision, John is letting these suffering Christians in Asia Minor know that, hey, the world is going to look really bad. Things are going to look really bad. And you're going to wonder. You're going to wonder if you can survive this. But just know that God has set a limit. God will preserve his people. He will protect his people. And he has restrained the forces of evil in the world. He will not let them have full reign. And then here in the chapters 10 and 11, then we've got the really strange stuff, right? So in the first trumpets, I think this is the people being reassured, look, God's going to hold it back. He's going to hold on to his people. You are protected and safe in the hand of your God. And the destructive powers of the empire of Rome, the destructive powers of nature, the destructive powers of warring armies, they're not going to have the final word. Their power is set. It is limited. It is not universal. And then we come to 10 and 11. And here we have some, some strange imagery too, right? First John takes this scroll. There's this angel standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And this is really just a symbol of the power and authority that this particular heavenly being has. And in his hand, he holds a little scroll. Not the big scroll that God had, not the big scroll that the, that the lamb was breaking the seals on, but there's a little scroll here, which is to say that this is God's plan for a short period of time. This is this is the, the sub-plan to the big plan. And that's what the angel's holding. And, and John is told, go and take that scroll from the angel when he takes the scroll, the angel tells him, hey, I want you to eat it. I mean, that, that's bizarre, right? You're going to eat the paper. And when you eat it, it's going to be bittersweet. It's going to taste sweet in your mouth, but it's going to turn your stomach sour. It's going to make you a little sick. And then, John, I want you to go and I want you to prophesy, which is not to tell the future. That's not what prophecy is in the Bible. In the Bible, prophecy is speaking the words of God. Anytime someone tells someone else what God has said and what God wants them to know, that's what prophesying is. And so God wants John to go and prophesy some more, and he wants him to prophesy these bittersweet words. That's why John eats the scroll. He has John eat the scroll so that the contents of the scroll become integral to who John is, so that when he speaks, what he's speaking is the contents of the scroll, God's plan. That's why he eats the scroll. And there's so much we can get just from this chapter 10 right here. There's so much we can pull from this. John eats the very words of God so that they become an integral part of him. So when he speaks, he speaks the words of God. How many of us need that encouragement today, right? Eat the word of God. If you want to know what God says, if you want to speak the words of Christ, if you want to speak the words of God, you have got to devour Scripture, you got to know what he says. It's got to be such an integral part of you that when you open your mouth, it naturally comes out. And the only way to do that is to get into it, to read it, to let it become a part of you, to let it become the defining part of you, so that when I speak, I speak the very words of God. But here's, here's the hard part about that. The word of God is bittersweet. The word of God is sweet like honey on the tongue. It is refreshing and it is cooling and it is good news for those of us who are in Christ. But for those who are not, it is a sour pill. John is going to prophesy these words of God and it's going to mean deliverance for those who are in Christ and it's going to mean destruction for the rest of the world. And John's not happy about it. It turns his stomach. And my friends, it gives me no joy to speak of the judgment of God. It gives me no joy to speak of the destruction of people that I love, but who have allied themselves with evil systems. The reality is, followers of Christ will be delivered. And those who don't follow Jesus won't. That's what the Scriptures teaches. And it brings me no joy to say that. It turns my stomach sour. Not because God is terrible and judgmental and wants to strike people down, but because God desperately loves people. He wants them to come to him. He wants them to be part of his family. He wants to adopt them. He wants them to be allegiant to King Jesus and not to the, the, neg- the evil power systems of the world. He wants people as his own. And it breaks his heart when people reject him. But that's the price of freedom. That's the price of true love. If God absolutely, truly loves us, he must give us an option in this thing. And when we reject him, when we turn our back on him, it breaks his heart and it is not sweet to God. But what's he to do? We've made our choice. When we turn our back on him, And that's why the word of God can be so bittersweet. Because it is truly the refreshing news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are more loved than you could ever have possibly imagined and that your sin will never stand against you in Christ. But it is also the truth that apart from Christ, our destiny is the same as all those systems of the world. We are a part of the unjust systems. We're a part, we're a cog in the great machinery of violence and war that God is judging here, apart from Jesus. And that makes the gospel, the good news of Jesus, bittersweet. And it turns John's stomach to have to carry this message. It turns John's stomach because he knows, number one, it's going to mean destruction for people. People who he loves because God loves them. And it's also going to mean opposition. And that's what happens in chapter 11, when we have these, these two witnesses. Now, these, in, in Scripture, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, it's prescribed that if you're going to make testimony in a court, you have to have two witnesses. One person alone's testimony will not suffice. We still hold something like that today. Right? If you've got two people arguing about something... Then it's just your word against my word. But you bring in a corroborating witness, and then you can start to get to the truth. And that's the same scripturally in the system that God set up for His people, for the nation of Israel. You got to have two witnesses, or else testimony's thrown out. The testimony of one person is no good. You got to have two corroborating witnesses to establish anything. That's why there are two witnesses here in chapter eleven. These two witnesses speak to. God's words. They prophesy God's words. That's what they're doing in chapter 11. They're standing at the site of the new temple. Now, this is not a physical, literal temple. This is the temple that the prophet Ezekiel prophesied. It's a spiritual temple for the restoration of God's people. This is the temple that is Christ. When Christ Jesus Walking in the temple in Jerusalem said, I'll tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about his body. What he's saying is, I am your temple. I'm the place where God meets earth. I'm the place where you come to worship. I'm the place where you connect with God the Father. And so these two witnesses are preaching and they're prophesying at the site of the temple, right within the community of God's people, within the community of Christ, the place where God's people worship. They're prophesying and their prophecy gets them into trouble with the world. People hear the prophesying of these two witnesses. They, they hear the words, these bittersweet words that John was given to prophesy to speak. and people don't like it. People don't want to hear it, and it brings opposition to them. And so we see the nations of the world conspiring to take out the two witnesses. and ultimately they're successful and they kill the two witnesses. And then later the witnesses, are revived. They're resurrected. And then we read, after that, the seventh trumpet, and Jesus returns. So what's going on with these two witnesses? These two witnesses are a stand-in for the people of God. They're a stand-in for the community of followers of Jesus. And what they're doing in the world is what the church is supposed to be doing, Speaking the words of God, speaking this bittersweet truth that was given to the Apostle John, speaking the bittersweet truth of Scripture everywhere that they go. The church is in the world testifying to the truth of God, testifying to the good news of Jesus, and also testifying to the bad news that apart from him, our destruction is sure. This is what the church is doing. And as the church goes about its mission, preaching the good news of Jesus, to the extent that the church is faithful in preaching the good news of Jesus, we're going to face opposition from within and without, from those who claim to follow Jesus but don't actually, and from those who don't know anything about him. Because this message is offensive. It is. The gospel message is offensive. But it is balm for the soul for those who buy into it, who accept it, who really own it. And that offense will cause pushback. It will cause the nations of the world and the systems of the world, it will cause the evil things of the world, the evil systems and nations of the world to stand opposed to the church. And they will bring persecution against the church. Now, th- there's a little myth right now that we've got to clear up. I've said this a couple of times. We are not persecuted in the United States. Don't think for a second that the church in the U.S. is persecuted. That narrative needs to die. Right? A loss of certain privileges in certain spaces is not equivalent to persecution. And I mean privileges, not rights. We are not a persecuted group in the United States. Christians still hold the most power in the U.S. of any religious group. So don't think that we're persecuted, but, but that doesn't mean that we don't face opposition within a broader culture. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that our gospel is going to be accepted everywhere that we go. I just said the gospel's offensive. And on a broader cultural level, the gospel is not something that people want to accept because it's an exclusive message. It says you have to follow Jesus. It says that forgiveness of sins comes only through Jesus Christ. Connection to God the Father comes only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Holding firm to the gospel of Jesus and not compromising that truth and those values will bring opposition. And so though we're not systematically persecuted in the United States, there is great opposition to the gospel. And we have to be okay with that. We have to say, okay, my faith is in Jesus Christ, my hope is in him, my whole life is wrapped up in the words of truth of his gospel, not in what the world thinks of me and what I have to say. And it's going to hurt, and it's going to bring opposition. And of course, there are places in the world where Christians are persecuted, radically persecuted, where the pressure is heavy on them, and the message is the same. Stand firm with the gospel because even if it costs your life here, no one can take the life that God has given you in Jesus Christ. Even if it ends in your death here and now, no one can take the life that God has to give you through Jesus. And so stay firm, hold tight. And that's what these words of resurrection are about. So the two witnesses representing the whole people of God, speaking the truth of God, receive the pushback of the nations of the world and end up dying. But that's not the last word. They're risen again. And after they're risen again, Jesus returns. Here's the lesson here. Here's the message here. Nothing can kill God's church. No matter what it looks like in the world, no matter what it looks like out there, no matter how much church attendance dwindles, no matter how much it looks like there's opposition, no matter how powerful the foes of the gospel appear to be, God will not fail his church. The church will survive. The church will continue. The church will never die. And when it looks like it has dead, when it looks like it's dead, when it looks like it has died, know that God has a resurrection planned. The church will not end. And here's the second piece. In all of this opposition, in all of the warfare that's coming upon these two witnesses, they don't fight back. Correction. They don't fight back with weapons. They don't amass an army. They don't stand up and demand their rights and use violence to overcome violence because that doesn't work. We're told that when opposition comes toward these two witnesses, they consume their opponents with fire from their mouths. Now you're like, wait a minute, Brandon, you just said they don't fight violence with violence, but that's a pretty violent image. But where's the fire coming from? It's from their mouth. In the Revelation, when you read of of fire coming from a mouth or later we'll read Jesus coming on a war horse, with a sword coming from his mouth, what this means is they're using their words. They're not taking up arms against their opposition, but they're speaking the truth. They're staying true to the gospel, and they're using their words to overcome the powers opposed to them. It is not for Jesus' people to amass an army or to stand up and to call for revolution and armed revolt. It is for Jesus' people to speak clearly and plainly the gospel of Jesus Christ, the words of God. It's for us to use the tool that God has given us to overcome the powers and authorities of the world and to speak the truth, even if it means speaking the truth all the way to the grave. Because we know that God's future for us is a resurrection future. We know that God's future for us is secure and that death will not have the final word. And so these chapters are a, they're, they're an encouragement to a church in Asia Minor, to a church in Turkey that that felt powerless, that felt the pressure of the Roman Empire, that felt the pressure of the local governments on them, who who felt like they were trying to be snuffed out. These chapters are an encouragement to these suffering Christians to say, keep going, keep speaking the truth, keep testifying, keep talking about Jesus, keep standing firm and holding to your values, keep holding to what Jesus has called you to, because they can't take that away. This is an encouragement to a suffering people, to a suffering church. And I hope today that it's an encouragement to us, not because we're suffering all that greatly, but because a lot of us are keeping our mouths shut for fear of suffering. Not because we're being oppressed or persecuted, but because too many of us aren't speaking the truth of Jesus for fear of that persecution or that oppression or that being cut off. I mean, this is an encouragement to us not because we're suffering, but because too many of us are just too quiet. And we're not talking about Jesus because we're afraid of this exclusive message. I think some of us are as offended by the gospel as, as our other people, as, as the, the rest of the world is, And we don't speak the gospel because we're afraid of the the opposition we're going to feel. But we can't let fear stop us. What do we lose when we're opposed for the gospel? What do we lose when someone stands against us or speaks ill of us or puts us down? What do we really lose in that situation? We don't lose anything. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. When we are opposed for standing true to the gospel of Jesus, when we are opposed for speaking in love the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus looks at us and says, you are blessed. Because you're like me. Jesus says, so for they treated." For so they treated the Son of Man. When we face opposition in the world, we're walking in the shoes of Jesus. We're walking in the path of Jesus. Now we gotta make sure we're facing opposition for the right thing, not because we're being obnoxious and judgmental and cruel and harsh and mean. If we face opposition in the world, let's make sure we're facing it because we're speaking the countercultural, subversive truth of Jesus Christ that God loves all people, and has sent Jesus Christ to pay for your sins, that he wants to adopt you into his family free of anything you can do. Let's be sure that if we're facing opposition, we're facing opposition for the right reason, because we're speaking the truth of God, and we're speaking the good news of the gospel of Jesus, not because we're trying to beat people over the head with the gospel, or beat people over the head with the Bible, or be obnoxious and annoying about it. Let's be sure that if we're facing opposition, it's not because we're pronouncing judgment upon everybody but because we're pronouncing the free grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that belongs to him and him alone. Let's make sure that that's why we face opposition. And then here comes the seventh trumpet. And in the seventh trumpet, Jesus is coronated. In the seventh trumpet, Jesus is king. This is the moment when Jesus comes back to the earth and wipes out the evil of the world, and remakes this world into the Eden that it was always intended to be. And the order of things here is really crazy because the seventh trumpet is blown and Jesus returns in response to the faithfulness of his people. His people walk faithfully in the good news of Jesus, speaking the truth of God, prophesying the words of Jesus, and then he comes back to call his own to him. Then he comes back to set up his eternal forever kingdom. And that's when pain is wiped out and violence is destroyed. And that's when the tears are wiped away and peace reigns forever. This is the future for all who follow Jesus Christ. And if the encouragement of chapter 11 is to keep, faithfully preaching the good news of Jesus, keep testifying to what he has done in and through and for you on your behalf. If that's the message, then here's the promise that comes at the end of it. If For those who are faithful, for those who speak the truth of Jesus, who hold tight to it, who, who won't let it go, Jesus promises you this future. The future where his reign and rule comes to the earth fully, undiluted, complete, and total, and peace finally reigns. This is the future we look forward to. And this is the future we want to share with everyone. This is the motivation for sharing the good news of Jesus. This is the motivation for speaking the truth of Christ and for testifying everywhere that we go. Because we want to share this future with everybody. We want to share this future even with our worst enemy because we were once the enemies of God. We want to share this kingdom and the rule and reign of our good King Jesus with everyone. We don't want anybody to miss out. And so out of love for our neighbors, we testify to the truth of God and to his gospel so that they too can experience this future rule and reign of Jesus. So they can have their tears wiped away. They can have their hurts healed. They can see an end to violence and oppression and persecution in the world. And they can know the fullness of life that Jesus comes to bring. That's your motivation. Sharing the gospel of Jesus, sharing the truth of Jesus is the most loving thing you can do with your life. It's the most loving thing you can do for everybody that you know because it's the only thing that defeats evil and brings about the kingdom of God in the world. Let's pray. God, thank you for these words, these hard words. Thank you for calling us your own. Thank you for this great good news, this gospel of Jesus that says we are forgiven in Him apart from what we can do. God, I pray that you would, you would well up in our hearts a motivation to share your good news with everyone that we know out of love to speak the truth so that, Lord, our neighbors, our friends, our enemies, can become part of your kingdom so that they too can experience this future that you have for your people and not experience the destruction of evil. God, I pray that I am one who is faithful in all that I do and that, Lord, apart from this stage and apart from this moment, Lord, you would make me, God, one who is eager to testify to the goodness that you have poured out of my life. Eager to testify of my loving kind, gracious, embracing God who wants to adopt all people into his family. God, I pray that you would root out from me every ounce of that desire to go my own way and to reject you every ounce of that desire to stand up to the powers of the world and try to overcome them by force. But instead, Lord, you would move me to use my words to speak the testimony of Jesus Christ and trust, Lord, that you have all things in hand. God, when it looks like the church is floundering, when it looks like the church is on its deathbed, I pray that you would remind me, remind us, Lord, that nothing will overcome your people in the end, that you, a resurrection is planned. God, and we want to walk in your resurrection life. We want to know the fullness of the life that you have to give. And God, I pray today for courage and bravery as we step out to share our stories and to testify to your goodness in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit christcommunitydenver.org.